This is Joe Dancy with Southern Methodist University McGuire Energy Institute. Thank you for joining the program, and we are entering into our year in review interviews, our year in review topics, our year in review just overall content, if you will. And so we're happy to have Joe Dancy come in, one of our regulars here on The Crude Life, as well as an energy expert, energy educator, and just all around good guy. How are you doing today? Hey, pretty good. It's uh, Finally, we got some cold here in Dallas, but it's uh, warmed up today. But uh, Lord knows, it's, we need to suck some of that natural gas uh, into some of our into some of our furnaces to get the price up a little bit, Jason. I tell you, ain't that the truth? They're paying. Are they still paying people to take it out of there instead of charging people? Oh yeah, some, in some areas it's getting much better with the pipeline systems out there in uh, the Permian Basin. But uh, yeah, for a while this summer it was pretty bleak. <clears throat> it was, um, you know, if you can't flare it, it's uh, you know you can actually uh, had to pay people to take it away. And the interesting thing is talking to some of the state land. Um, people they you know how do you get a royalty when you're when you're actually giving people money or paying them to take your gas away and actually is you know is is there a negative royalty that gets credited against the state land so they were they were they were wrestling with that and i i don't know what the answer is but i thought it was a darn good question (laughs) i'll tell you what you're something that the folks probably don't believe but I had down as one of my topics as stories of the year or uh, interviews of the year or however you want to frame it is the actual negative price, if you will, of natural gas in the Permian. That, to me, that's that, that that tells the story. When when you look at the annals of the shale revolution, the fact that you actually had such an abundance of natural gas that the energy companies were still making enough money. And we're still able to make the numbers work in order to pace people to come take that natural gas out instead of, you know, having people pay them like is the traditional model of our economy. And, you know, all the little slivers that come through it, like you mentioned, the royalty owners and all those other things that that truly is one. I would say not the top, but it would be in the top 10. Would you put it in the top 10 for stories of the year or uh, energy issues of the year, if you will? Actually, I I would put it in the top ten, and of course, you know, as you know, what most people do if they can if they can get the permit is they instead of paying people to take it away, they flare it. And uh, in theory, you're only supposed to flare for a relatively short period of time, but you can get extensions based on you know certain factors, and you have to go to the agencies and explain what's going on. And um, and each state's a little bit different. I tell you what, your buddies in North Dakota. You know, they've done a relatively good job in, in getting, you know, the flaring issue under control. Because as you know, you know, you flare gas, and it has absolutely no value. At least if you're paying someone to take the gas away, it's being used in a, you know, feedstock somewhere to heat somebody's house or power an electric generator. But if you're flaring it, I mean, it's gone forever, and it's, you know, pretty light, and that's about it. And I, it's, the flaring was, has been a huge issue all year, as well as... Uh, you know, just natural gas prices and natural gas capacity and, you know, paying people negative prices to, to take that stuff away. And, yeah, you're right. That is that is a huge, 
that's a big issue, and I didn't even th- I didn't even consider that as one of my major issues of the year. But uh, I would put it in the top. Actually, I probably put it in the top five. Quite I, frankly, I was going to say if, if we're going to talk about flaring, that's easily top five, maybe even top three, because in fact, in North Dakota, it's such an issue. Uh, in in about a week and a half, they're going to have a um, uh, kind of a big meeting. It's a public hearing for flaring in in uh, the state capitol. They're going to have it because it's it's they're I don't know I don't know if they've hit the mark more than twice in a year in the past year as far as their goals that they set for themselves so they've they've been having some real troubles keeping the numbers down of course what we talked about down in the Permian same same exact issues there trying to uh, trying to figure out a way to redirect it trying to figure out a way to get it to the market and that's the big problem in North Dakota. They just don't have the, the infrastructure built yet. And you mentioned down in Texas with the pipelines. What are you hearing? What are you, um, I guess, you go to conferences. What are they saying in terms of some of the solutions when it comes to flaring? Well, there, yeah, there really isn't a whole lot of <laughs> solutions besides you know building out the gas um, pipeline system and gas gathering system and I know in Texas we've had a bunch of capitals been going into the ground to to address that issue and and also I, I won't say this in North Dakota when I was up there this summer um, just a couple of months ago uh, I was over at the uh, Freiburg Rail Terminal and they were actually you know they were taking it wasn't natural gas but they were taking they were liquefied natural gas which you know they strip out the propane and the ethane and I guess it is a portion of the natural gas so. Uh, but instead of flaring it, they're sticking it on rail cars. And I think I, I think we've talked about this before. But, uh, you know, I asked, you know, we asked a bunch of regulators were with me. It was the Interstate Oil and Gas Compact Commission. It's like, would you, where are you, where are you shipping that? My expectation, Jason, is they're going, oh, we're shipping it to a chemical factory in Wyoming or a chemical factory in Nebraska. But it's like, well, no, we're, you know, they're shipping, you know, the uh, propane and ethane and the, I forget the other one, is Z5 or X5 or something. It's. It's going to Mexico, and I well, that's it. That's great for that's great for trade, and it's great for North Dakota, and it's great for the Mexicans because they, as you know, in Mexico you don't have private mineral ownership, and you it's tough to deal with the Mexican government getting leases, getting concessions, getting help, and it's also dangerous as heck in some areas to actually work, <laughs> um, you know, without having an army protecting you, and so. Uh, for everybody, it's a win-win. Other than, um, as you know, you you know you start shipping around flammable stuff in rail cars, and even though they're really really safe, and they redesign the cars, and um, you know accidents happen, and those babies, you know, if they go off the if they go off the track and they get ruptured, you can have quite a quite a fire, unfortunately. You know what's interesting about that is so much of this, in my opinion, is is. Um what is on the first wave or the first layer that people can see. And just to comment on your uh, Mexican part, I actually think the, the natural gas is a candidate for story of the year as well, um, just on some of the innovation. The Mexican market that's been salivating for uh, natural gas for all those reasons you just mentioned before. Um, some of the innovation that's happened with natural gas the amount of pipelines that are being built to help out natural gas so to me natural gas is one of those probably top two stories um and a contender which i want to transition to um 
also, I think rig counts is another one. We'll get to that in just a second. But the, the way that you were talking, I wanted to transition to the California wildfire, which is so much of the narrative right now is to go towards renewable and so much research is coming back now that California, who if people whether they like it or not, is is a guinea pig for what's going on in the re renewable transformation, and the issues that they're having, trying to play Mother Earth, trying to be the environmentalists out there, it's the it's it's Yellowstone all over again. They're having problems because it seems more and more evidence every single day for these wildfires is pointing to the shift to renewables. Do you know what I'm talking about with that? Yeah, and I actually, it's a great transition because natural gas is some of the cleanest, cheapest fuel to burn the turbines, the electrical turbines. And we see more and more natural gas plants going up. And part of the problem, Jason, as you know, I mean, not necessarily in Texas and North Dakota, but in, elsewhere in the East Coast, to get the natural gas from the well to the power plant is a, diff, a difficult. And even in North, I guess even in Minnesota, let me put this out, I think it was last year, last winter, where, you know, you, you heat your house, a lot of houses with, with natural gas, and uh, you also run the electrical turbines with them. And if there's a short of, of natural gas, then you have a real problem. I mean, do you turn off the electricity and shut down the turbine, or do you... You know, do you cut people's heat off that uh, you know from their gas uh, gas furnaces? And can can, can I interject real quick because sure. not only was it Minnesota, it was also Chicago because in in the turbines with the wind energy, if you don't have wind, it's a problem. But also, if you have too much wind, it's a problem. So the real issue last year was when you had the blizzards because the the wind was going too fast to turn the wind turbines when the natural gas is being used for people's furnaces. Yeah, that's exactly. And actually, Detroit, uh, Michigan had the same issue. The, uh, and there's a couple couple issues there. This shocked me. I didn't realize, you know, when you get around 50 miles an hour, apparently the wind turbines, they kick off. They, and it, they, the reason they do that, apparently, if they turn too fast, the, um, the electrical... Um, the alternating current doesn't uh, quite fit into it doesn't synchronize into the system real well as well as you have some issues i guess apparently with blade flex and potential issues uh, and also and this is this is not a problem in dallas and or oklahoma but it is a problem in north dakota and in minnesota when you get and i forget what the number is but it's either minus 10 degrees fahrenheit or minus 20 and those the winter was also automatically cut off. I don't know why they do that, but I mean I've, I've read the specs that, uh, and and that was a big issue in Minnesota too. It's like, hey, when we when we need our wind turbines and it's relatively windy out and it's like 20 below, you know they're sitting there not producing because either it's too windy or it's too cold, and um, you got to go back to the old natural gas or even you know even coal. And I actually I love coal. I think it's a, a great resource. I mean it, in not totally um, environmentally friendly, but it's friendly enough with all the technologies that we have adopted. I visited some coal plants in Oklahoma uh, within the last couple of years, and you show up at the gate, and they got to check you in, and they run you through all sorts of security to make sure you're you're legit. And uh, and yeah, it's it, it's a pretty big deal to to get into a coal plant or any anything these days. But uh, but I look up and you you see the 
the smokestack. There's nothing coming out of it. And I mentioned to the guard, gee, it's too bad. I thought they'd be running today. I'm, I'm here to visit and for my, you know, take some notes for my classes. And, oh, no, we're running full, full power, 100%. It's like you wouldn't, you could not tell from the um, smokestack other than they did say, you know, if you came back here and it was like 20 or 10 degrees, you, what you would see coming up would be uh, white billowing, but it would not be soot. It would be... Um, uh, water vapor and it'd be condensing and so um so coal has come a long way but natural gas especially so that's to transition from your your comments you know natural gas is a a huge story also because number one it's abundant it's cheap it's really great to use for peaker plants as well as just you know full-time baseload natural gas generating plants environmentally friendly of course you know more and more people now are coming to the conclusion, at least environmentalists, that, you know, maybe this stuff, you know, we want to go totally um, emission-free, which means solar or wind turbine. And as you note, you know, there's some severe problems with wind turbine, the utility wind turbines. And I've looked at some um, residential wind turbines because I, well, this is pretty cool. I'll go check these out. And um, number one, the economics don't work. And number two, you know, when you put in your backyard a, a device that's 60 feet in the air or higher that weighs like 1,200 pounds, um, you know, you got to sort of worry if it falls over, it doesn't come into your bedroom or your neighbor's bedroom. And number two, it's sticking up there. And you guys get the same deal you have here in Texas. I mean, in the summer, we got, you know, these thunderstorms come through and you got a piece of copper sticking up, you know, 60 feet or more in the air. Um, it's like a, it's like a, um, a, uh, lightning uh, rod sticking up. And so, uh, so what I've been told, even by the manufacturer, he said, oh, these get struck by lightning all the time. And when they do, depending on, you know, the degree of, um, how big the bolt is and how it strikes, it'll, it'll rip, rip things apart. Then he goes, then, then the problem is, you know, and I don't know how you are, but I can climb up a six foot ladder and put up Christmas lights, but you know, if you got to go up and you got to go up at about once a year or twice uh, every other year and do some maintenance or check things out if it's been struck by lightning and to climb up a 60 foot tall pole and then, you know, do the maintenance. You can't just take the motor off and stick it in your pocket, and climb back down. I mean, you got to do the maintenance 60 feet in the air hanging off. Uh, and of course, you don't do it. And of course, whoever comes, the electricity, I mean, you're going to pay you're going to pay brain surgeon um, prices, and you should, because, I mean, it's dangerous stuff to get up there. And I, there's not a whole lot of, I mean, even electricians, you know, bless their hearts, they know better than the, the hanging off a wind turbine 60 feet in the air while they're messing with the rotors that are, you know, that weigh, you know, 50 pounds each. So, uh, anyway. How about over on the California side? We mentioned I mentioned the California wildfires, how it just seems more and more evidence is pointing to the fact that there was a mandate to go renewable with, you know, whether it's a power company declaring bankruptcy, cutting back on the tree, um, the, the, the cutting of the tree branches. Um, it could be, it could have been the strain on the, on the grid at certain times. It just seems like more and more the evidence keeps pointing back to that. It was the push of the renewables and the speed of the push to those renewables that this is all part of the ripple that's coming back from it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and part of the deal in California, you know, they, with their tax incentives, every movie star had their own wind turbine. 
And unfortunately for them, a lot of the stuff they put in is more than a decade old now. So it's old technology. And so you stick those um, wind turbines on the grid. And the other thing that I I didn't realize was the fact that uh, I've been teaching energy law now for three or four years. And one of the things doing the research was um, these power lines, you know, they are... A, and always have been a fire hazard. You really have to go, and at least in Dallas, when you go around and you look at the power lines, you know there's a right away, and they actually the grasses you know mowed once or twice a year. There's no trees anywhere near those lines. And part of the reason I didn't realize this, but it makes sense when you have a big load on those lines, the the wire heats up. Now whether it's aluminum or copper or whatever, it heats up, and when it heats up, it expands, and when it expands. Your your um, your wire will sag. You can actually, I've seen pictures where they take a picture of the you know the wire you know, during normal operations, then a picture of the wire from the same spot. You know when when the you know you're at capacity and the you'll have a significant what's called line sag. And so if you have any trees nearby or if you have any wind, you know that that line will start to um, you know sway and and you'll have. You know, potential issues, but as you know, you know one of the big pushes in California was to renewables, and I guess the other big issue was apparently the some of the utilities out there allegedly, you know, instead of uh, spending the money, you know, keeping their rights away clear for the transmission and distribution, they um, sort of let things grow over a little bit, and of course. You know, some of the environmentalists, environmentalists encouraged it. It's like, geez, you know, let's go back to the, you know, why do you want to cut all these trees down? It's like we need to, you know, leave the, the natural look. And the most interesting thing is it's, uh, it's uh, you know, you hear people now talking about you know, everything out there, and they're essentially uh, blaming all this on, gee, it's global warming. And, of course, the funny, this is not funny at all, but the interesting thing is, Jason, I mean, if it's global warming, how come this is only occurring really in California? I mean, we, we, we have utility fires elsewhere, but nothing on the scale that you're seeing out out there. And so the whole policy issue, and I mean, you just hit, this is my number one issue, and I I wouldn't have thought about this two or three years ago, and I Lord knows, but when you have millions of people who are inconvenienced when their power is shut off for two or three days, you know, their food goes bad. You can't get a, you can't get gasoline because the pumps don't work. You don't have air conditioning. You don't have heating. Thank God they have a pretty moderate climate out there. Um, the economy, I mean, I guarantee you, I don't know what this does to the California economy, but it, if you don't have power, you're not doing a whole bunch of business transactions. It's probably, you know, there are not too many hamburgers going out the door when you, when you can't cook them. <laughs> um, and, uh, but, but the whole concept and the other thing and this is pretty surprising too and you noted when you know one of the deals with cutting off the power here with these planned outages was because of the high winds and the utility didn't say we can't operate uh, wind turbines you know when when we have 80 80 mile an hour gusts but that's exactly so what what has happened is these companies realize you know and it's not an insignificant portion of your power anymore it's a a relatively large portion of um, of power, especially incremental power, when you have to turn off your wind turbines because of wind gust, um, and you can't make. I mean, essentially, what you have is a is a a blackout, and it, it um, and you're either going to do it. You're either going to have a blackout, um, 
if you keep it operating because you aren't going to have enough juice and you're going to have voltage problems, you're going to have cyclic, you know, just the hertz and everything, you're going to have all sorts of issues. Or, um, um, you know, essentially it's, it is, it is a, a problem or if you take it offline purposely, I mean, you, you avoid those issues, but it, um, you create some real, real problems. So, and, and the killer of all this, Jason, is the, you know, you're, you're talking oil is expensive to drill, but when you're putting in electrical facilities and transmission lines and um, you're talking hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars. And, you know, now you're hearing some people say, gee, California needs to bury all their their uh, utility lines. And it, it is interesting. I will say this. When I've been at some renewable operations, um, wind turbine operations in Oklahoma and Texas, almost all of them bury their their transmission line. And part of the reason is for safety, and part of it, the reason is for fire. They realize, um, you know, they realize the uh, a transmission line creates fire hazards. So, in some of these areas where they, it, it's sort of interesting to see where they have to bury the line are pretty rocky. So it's more like a mining operation to get the darn line to the ground. It's pretty, it's pretty cool to see. But, uh, but anyway, that would be my number one story is California. And going forward, I mean, we do need, and I don't want to, I don't want to have any misunderstand. I mean, going forward, we're going to need more electricity regardless. It grows with the economy. Now, whether it's gas, whether it's coal, whether it's wind, whether it's solar, I mean, the problem I have, and you mentioned it, was everything has been forced so quickly on us. The grid has been around for ages it actually is not operated by anybody. I didn't, you know, realize. I thought well, maybe the FERC or somebody in Washington D.C. is, you know, pulling all the triggers. And it's actually sort of like a bicycle with a thousand different riders. And the neat thing about the grid is, you know, your demand and supply have to balance instantaneously all the time. And the and actually it's sort of cool because like we can. If I put a if I had a solar panel on my house and I don't, and I put an electron in. I mean, it literally, um, it would, it could, if, we, if Texas was connected to the, you know, to the Southwest Power Pool, you know, it could be, be you could be pulling that, the electron out um, of that grid uh, in North Dakota. But unfortunately, well, fortunately, Texas has their own, their own grid. And then, then you have the North Dakota, Oklahoma, uh, and a bunch of the states in the middle there have the Southwest Power Pool that they, you know, they throw all their electrons in. So it's sort of, a, it's a, very interesting concept but it's not it is not simple um it's not cheap it's difficult to operate you know to date from what i've read a lot of people are impressed that the system has been as stable as it is with so many renewables because as you know i mean the sun sun stops shining you know in the evening um you're going to have to we don't have battery the battery power economically doesn't work yet so you have to kick on the, the natural gas spinning generation to back you up, and that actually causes a lot of pollution because the you're starting the start and stop type of stuff causes more emissions than than otherwise. And the neat thing is that this is this is really cool too, and you can appreciate this um, maybe in North Dakota, the um, in Upper Michigan they have some of the highest power prices in the nation, and up there they also have a whole bunch of abandoned deep shaft uh, mines. And so what we are, I'm working with a couple professors looking at, um, it's called uh, pumped storage, where 
you will, these mines are full of water, and the water is fresh water. I mean, water is really good quality stuff. It's up by Lake Superior. And if you have a wind turbine or a solar, you can actually, during the day, you can pump the water up to a pond on the surface, and then at night, you can, when you, you know, when you need the water, you know, instead of having a battery, you, you, you know, when you need the power, you can turn the valve on and the, the, um, the, the turbine. The problem is you lose 30 or 35 or 40% of your power doing that. So it's not real efficient, but it's the, you know, the old theory of the, you know, the Tesla wall, I used to call it, or the batteries in your, it, those don't, those aren't real efficient. And when I've talked to people who install solar in residential, and when I talk to people who's, who have installed um, these small wind turbine systems, there aren't many, but there are a few, you know, they say generally, Joe, you know, it'll cost you 30000 to put a solar system on your roof. And then, you know, we'll, we'll, use the, we'll use the grid as a backup, but if you want batteries, that's going to be another $10,000. So you're, you're, a large portion is batteries, and those batteries will only, last, will only last for, you know, 12 to 24 hours, depending on the load in your house. So anyway, it's an interesting, it's an interesting business, and it's, um, you know, that's my number one story. And going forward, I guess the, the, to follow up on this is the reason it's my number one story is I don't think we've seen the end of this. But in California... God bless those folks. I mean, they're going to have problems for the next few years as they try to figure out, you know, figure this all out. And I will tell you, and it, this is somewhat scary. I mean, last week I was, I had some guest speakers into my class, and I actually gave a presentation on renewables. And and um, and uh, one of the things they pointed out, my guest speakers, is in Texas, in every every system, you generally want to have some um, you know, some safe you know, margin of safety. And uh, the margin of safety in Texas has gotten much lower than it has historically. And part of the problem is, is from an economic standpoint, you know, you don't want to spend $300 million unless you're going to be sure you get, you're going to get a return. And with the renewables, with the solar, it's difficult. And with all the regulations on coal and pipelines, reg- restrictions on natural gas, it's difficult to tell whether you're going to get what type of return you're going to get on your two or three hundred million dollars or more to build a to build a power plant? So it's um it's a uh, so they haven't been built. And so on September sixth, you know, we had a ERCOT had to send out an emergency notice. And actually, I got one on my phone. I downloaded their app, and I think the Southwest Power Pool where you're at. Um, and if you're in Oklahoma and Nebraska, you can download their app too and see. But they actually send you a little push email and you know please conserve power um you know we are having a power emergency um and this was like it this was like at four in the three in the afternoon and the emergency went from like five five to eight p.m which is you know when the solar is be going going down and the other thing is with renewables too just in this sort of and i haven't uh, when you have wind power apparently in the summer the wind does not blow as robustly as other times of the year that's why you have ozone days down here and of course if the if it's hot and the wind's not blowing you're not generating electricity using your wind turbine you're going to have to you know you have to go back to, to your to your gas turbines if you have enough gas turbines or your coal plants and coal plants are being retired at record numbers so it's interesting it's interesting to see and they're old plants and they're they've been reliable and they're all fully ex, you know been fully depreciated but um yeah, the bad news is there, Jason. When you you go to a coal plant, you got a couple dozen people working there, and they're usually pretty good jobs, paying wise. But when you, when you go to a wind turbine facility, 
you know, you got three people looking at a computer screen and, and they're pretty good jobs, but to, you know, you got three of them versus 36 and it doesn't really help the community economy quite as well. No. And you, you just brought up a whole litany of issues that I have as known as the renewable nightmare, the renewable ripple. Um, I wanted to ask you about, you, you said you, you gave a presentation on it. You spoke on it. California, you, you consider it to be your story of the year. Um, I want to throw two things your way, which I believe are very well showcased during California right now, because I think California is a very good example of what would happen if the rest of the country adapted a lot of the policies that California adopted, because science doesn't care about policy. Mother Nature doesn't care about policy. And the, 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 the politicians have not figured that out yet that there are just some things that don't adhere to Republican and Democrat policy. They just don't. And Mother Nature is one of those things. But I'll tell you the one thing that does adhere to policy is income wages. And the one thing that is shown in, in terms of income and demographics when it comes to this green movement is that the poor suffer. The poor suffer. Is in California... It's, there's more stories coming out every day about how the, the poor people are the ones affected the most. From the refrigerators going out to the only the rich people have got some backup power of solar panels and, and that sort of thing, to the rich people can afford to have their brush removed. And they're buying out certain areas that are getting more water so the, um, the, the lower-income people are being forced into the drought areas. So, I mean, these stories are just coming out more and more every day. So that, the one side of it is, is that um, I wanted to ask you your opinion, because I think there's enough out there that most people can talk uh, opinion and, and, and non-opinion based and not be political about this, because there is enough evidence to say that renewable energy right now can be argued it is discriminatory against poor people. The other one is the fact that when you have a when you have a, a power provider, they generally have a monopoly, and that monopoly is sponsored and supported by the state or the the local government, and it's been a long standing relationship that's worked and not worked and worked and not worked. But I'll tell you right now what's happening in Minnesota. You mentioned Minnesota a few times. XL Energy is in Minnesota, and correct me if I'm wrong, but most. And I, I believe this is most of the municipalities when they have an agreement with these energy companies is they don't profit on the energy. They profit on the infrastructure. And so when XL Energy needs to meet, meet shareholders, so they got to go put up wind turbines, they can put a 10 to 15 or whatever the percentage is that they all agree upon uh, to do additional uh, uh, projects like this. So this is a way for them to create revenue. And I'm looking at this as, boy, 10, 20 years from now, this could be some double dipping here, some big time double dipping. So anyway, I, I wanted to ask you about as an educator and as trying to keep as much politics out of this, because I know what I just handed you was a loaded hand grenade. But I, 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 but I do think there's enough evidence to actually speak on this in somewhat of an educational, articulate, civil way to say the monopolies have been around for a long time, 100 years. And um, as far as the, the public-private partnership there. And then also the whole discrimination thing. Uh, your thoughts on those two loaded hand grenades I gave you? 
that's a good question. The, uh, part of the problem is, too, as you know, a lot of this is very uh, uh, very intense emotions involved here. And I actually have a good friend who at SMU, a professor I work with, and he went to London uh, for a conference here two weeks ago. And he was going out the airport, and, and some climate change protester actually glued himself on top of the airplane. I mean, literally, Jason, he climbed up you know, on the gateway and, wow. and glued himself. and. And then they, you know, they were having all sorts of protests uh, in downtown, you know, London to try to shut everything down. On and so, you know, there is not you. It's difficult to have a rational debate on technology, especially when there's a bunch of uncertainties involved, and especially when money is involved. And of course, the the interesting thing. This is sort of a tangent to where you know you were talking about is, you know, a lot of these concepts of what you pay for power. Um, depends on the policy and a lot of people who can afford to pay for higher power prices for example um, you know we're we're big supporters of renewables and I mean it's a there's a huge tax credit for uh, uh, and there has been for solar and for wind and so that yeah I can say the joke in California was you know every movie star had their own wind turbine at one time just because the huge you you make profit off things but you have to make good money to to, uh, to, to profit off that, but the, the concept is California has some of the most expensive power uh, in the United States, along with Hawaii, as well as Upper Michigan. Upper Michigan, you go, what? It was Upper Michigan. The, the problem is, is uh, one of the, the, the huge coal plant that was up there on Lake Superior uh, under the Obama administration with some of the new EPA coal rules, it shut. And so it was, the, it was a very, very cheap source of power. It had been there, I mean, for, for decades and decades and decades, and now, you know, they have to import the power from, you know, from elsewhere, so it's sort of interesting to see. But your policy, you know, of, of power costs, and of course, California is not quite as energy intensive as like North Dakota, where you have all the heating, uh, heating uh, power use, but it's still, it, you're poor, the poor are at more adversely impacted than those. I mean, it's the, the incremental income, and 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 like just the jobs. I mean, you the job the again a jobs the jobs when you have a drilling a gas well, laying a pipeline, you know, running a processing plant, running a refinery, um, mining coal, shipping coal, uh, shipping oil. Um, it's all. Those are good-paying jobs, and you don't have to, you know, have a doctorate in brain science to, to, to get those. Although they're cyclical, but um, but if you are mandating high-cost renewables, the number of people involved in those operations, especially once they, you know, get it constructed. I mean, you, you, the wind turbine, the, the cost is free because the, or the power, you know, in theory, the power cost is almost zero because the wind blows, you get power. The same thing with sunshine, you get power. You don't, you don't need to have any operational expertise, et cetera. So, um, so that's, uh, those are sort of my, my thoughts there. And, and going forward, I, I do think, I mean, I, the whole concept, the technology too is, is continuing to, Evolve and oh, the other thing I was going to mention: one of the problems you have with both solar and wind is trying to move the power to markets. And I in Minnesota, I think was the site in the 1970s. I was actually going to school in Upper Michigan, and they, they 
um, Minnesota farmers got so mad because some of the dudes there in North Dakota, your state, uh, were going to ship some power over to Minneapolis. And they went through these farm fields and put up these huge transmission poles. And, you know, they all of a sudden they started getting blown up and people got, you know, being shot at. And, um, and of course, the utilities claim, well, gee, we have the right of way. And it's like, well, you got the right of way, but this is my farm field. But the whole, that whole concept of transmitting, you know, and I, I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of the Texas Panhandle and the Oklahoma Panhandle, uh, very sunny places, very windy places, but there isn't a lot of industry out there. So um, they actually had a big project. I mean, this is a multi-billion-dollar-plus project out in the Oklahoma uh, Panhandle, and I, I think they called it Project uh, Windcatcher. And what they were going to do is they were going to, you know, generate a bunch of renewable power out in the Oklahoma Panhandle, and they could because there's a the the, the, the wind and the sun is very intense out there, but they wanted to bring it all the way across Oklahoma, across Arkansas, and dump the power off in Memphis. And apparently the, the people in Arkansas, when it got to the state line, um, you know, the Arkansas government said, you know, what's in it for us? And uh, the local citizens just went nuts. It's like, geez, you know, you're, you're going to generate all this power out in the Oklahoma panhandle. Of course, the people in Oklahoma apparently were, at least the politicians, were okay with it going, you know, through through the Panhandle down to Tulsa and over to Tulsa and down across. But the concept in Arkansas, it's like, what's in it for us? Number one and number two, you know, as you as we see in in California, these lines are not not entirely non-hazardous because they, um, you know, they do catch fire from time to time. They do, you know, have have issues. They get struck by lightning. Um, as well as just they're, uh, you know, they're not a ice. I guess depends on your view. I, I don't mind towers, although I would never buy a house where I looked out and saw uh, any type of, uh, if I could avoid it, uh, any type of transmission towers. But, you know, some people say, you know, they're an eyesore. And, of course, as you know, in North Dakota, portions of it, as well as Minnesota, you know, you start, you start putting, or in western Oklahoma, too, in western Texas, you put a, transmission tower up and you trans I mean, you can see it for 10 miles away it's just you know that's just the nature of the landscape and um as well as you know as well as wind towers i mean you do you have the same wind turbines you have the same issue with them and uh unfortunately or maybe fortunately there's been a number of cases in texas it's pretty cool and i teach the old laws that you know if you don't like you know your neighbor's gonna put up a wind turbine you don't like the way it looks. You think you bought this house because you're out, you can fish, you can hunt, and you don't want to see that thing. Can you file suit and stop them from putting up their wind turbine? The answer, according to the according to the Texas courts, are no. You know, aesthetics. It, it, and part of the deal is, and I have to agree with this, the court reason, you know, if you, what is pretty and what is not is everybody has different judgments. And Jason, if you're going to build a house across from me and I could file a suit and said, hey, I don't like the color of your garage door. You know, essentially what the court said is just giving, you know, giving me subjective judgment to really zone your property. That's your property to deal with. And same thing, whether it's uh, the color of your garage door or whether you put a wind turbine up or whether you put up, you know, solar panels. Although living in a in a I live in a residential area, and I, you, you probably do, too. And, um, you know, you have homeowners association. Uh, restrictions with regard to where you can put these things up, and obviously you have you also have safety issues with regard to the city ordinances. Um, but but this whole transmission issue, 
is a huge issue, and it's going to. And in California, you know, they they their grid has not been upgraded. They the um, trees and brush have not been maintained the way they should. Um, and so, and then you're throwing a bunch of uh, renewables, you know, in, onto the grid. Um, you you, it's a it's a yeah, it's a it's a puzzle with no really good solution. It's going to be a little bit difficult too because a lot of the pipelines are getting 40, 30, 50 years old. Uh, we're talking pipelines for not only crude but natural gas. So a lot of the infrastructure will be, be having, having to be looked at. And we've had conversations on this program in the past year, which I, I, I think it's a very good question. I think especially for next year it should be asked. Should pipelines be considered critical infrastructure? And our opinion is that yeah, it should be. And a lot of uh, you know the Department of Defense and Energy uh, and a lot of the government agencies deem uh, pipeline infrastructure as critical infrastructure. But with the new movement, the new green movement, and the new accepted forms of discrimination and bullying. Uh, and that's I and I'm trying to be very sterile when I say that because the the I've even got down preferred versus renewed because the the way that they've been looking the other way on the ushering in of wind energy blows my mind. This is all very bizarre to me. This is very bizarre to me, Joe. You're you're an educator. There has never been one of these giant wind turbines ever decommissioned. So nobody has any idea how much it's gonna cost. What they're starting to find out now is that these batteries need to be replaced. There is an economic, economical and ecological footprint behind each one of those lithium powered battery cells. Now, when, when we start looking at some of the renewable energy here, it, it, there is no evidence even to show that the positive that there's a, a positive output over a negative output over 20 years because you're having to redo so much and we're having to re-scrap this and having to go back. And I'll tell you, I, I, I'm starting to almost question this whole overall movement more and more because the wind, the, the wind energy seems to be the popular way to go. I can't believe that the U.S. wildlife knows that wind energy turbines are the number one cause for the slow extinction of the golden eagle in the southwest and obama's administration it was during his time so it's not against that but that's the way that history has it is the obama administration made it okay for wind turbines to kill golden eagles now before then it wasn't okay and then Duke University got fined millions of dollars in Wyoming, and it turned into a big kerfuffle. And then the Obama administration made it okay for the wind turbines to kill bats and birds and bees and everything else. To me, that's a big story. Of the and this was this was first brought up in Colorado, or I'm sorry, in Wyoming at the Energy Exposition for the first time. Uh, Senate Majority Minority Leader John Cook. Uh, out of Greeley, Colorado, Weld County, number one oil and gas producing county in Colorado. He referred to um, wind and energy as preferred, or wind and solar as preferred, not renewable, but preferred. And I agreed with him in the moment, and I still agree with him today. 
because hydro and nuclear are renewable, but they're never in the conversation. And nuclear is considered renewable. Now, a lot of the stuff leading up to it isn't, but the actual energy itself is, and then hydro, of course, is as well. Um, the way they're looking, I mean, Joe, have you have you talked about this? Do you have you ever been on a a, 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 a class or a presentation about how you know the whole you know killing the birds and the bats and the bees that's okay, and and the the lithium being the in the batteries, how, how there's they seem to get this free pass for things that arguably are much worse than fossil fuel and coal. Yeah, it's it's uh, what's interesting to see because every the the way I balance it, Jason, you you have to be diplomatic, and I God, I hate to compare myself to a politician because none of them are diplomatic these days. You're you're an educator. You have to be. Yeah, but it's like we need more energy. Every different form of energy has its advantages and disadvantages. I will say. Having grown up and been around both the mining and the oil and gas business, that is where, and I, having grown up in the era when utilities were regulated, you know, you went, you could not, if you had a, a, if you had a wind turbine on your farm and you wanted to plug in, you know, in 1970 to the utility and transport or sell it to them, they wouldn't, they didn't have to take it and they wouldn't take it. They'd say, hey, the heck with you. Uh, the 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 whole concept. So I'm I'm preferential to the old style um, utility setup because I know it works. I mean, Lord knows the you know there were issues. We had you know the 1970 blackout or 19 whatever is in New York City, and but the grid for the most part was well regulated. It was stable. That's one reason. If you don't have electricity, you really, you really, really do screw up the economy. You screw up businesses. You screw up, you know, people's lives. And so, in in California, if now, I mean, even once or twice a year, if you're out without power for two or three days, and I guess this all sort of struck home. I go, I will just go in in Texas. You know, every once in a while, we have a hurricane blow in. It's usually in Houston or Galveston or you know, down in. When a hurricane blows in, unfortunately, you know, those poor folks are out without power, you know, for maybe a week. I mean, it's tough to tell. They, they, you know, it doesn't happen often, but then, you know, you hear the stories of I've Houston buddies and they'll, they'll come up to Dallas and they'll talk about, you know, what it's like to live without electricity. And it's, uh, it, and especially, you know, in a, well, in a humid climate like that, it's, uh, in the summer, it's usually, it's pretty brutal with no food and everything. And it's, uh, of course, they can, you know, you, the, the, the magic of fossil fuels and getting in your car and being able to drive, you know, 200 miles north to a city and there's air conditioning and food is, is sort of a miracle. But, uh, but looking at that, I mean, the, the, you realize how critical the system is and the fact there's a whole bunch of unanswered questions with regard to, you know, not only, you know, the, the impact. Like one of the latest, uh, you probably didn't, see this recently it's a it was a bbc article i think or was it it was the british they apparently according to um some scientists the it's called sf6 it's a it's a it's used in the electric equipment um to keep everything um from catching fire but it's, it's used mainly in europe apparently but it's it is the most potent greenhouse gas known to man according to the article and apparently they've had a few leaks of that 
So the so in essence, while we are putting in these, um, especially in Europe, all these wind turbines, um, you know, essentially to protect the environment and, and reduce the greenhouse gases, you know, they are emitting not through the wind turbine, but through the electric equipment that they use over there. And I haven't I, I haven't heard I've heard people talk about F, SF6. So I'm going to check it out more later this week. I'm going to meet with some utility folks uh, and, and find out what the story is in the United States. But the fact is, in Europe and elsewhere, um, the amount of greenhouse gas is like it's like having like a million, 1.3 million cars on the road, you know, for a year is what they what the article said. Now, Lord knows that those folks know what they're talking about, but it was a and, I, and I've seen it. Um, there's a there's an investment banker out of Houston. I think it's called PPHG Group or whatever, and they have a newsletter. And that's what I saw it about a month ago in there. And then I saw the article in the uh, in the British uh, newspaper or magazine. And, uh, and actually, I posted it on LinkedIn and you know ask anybody if they know about it. And I got a couple private emails saying, yeah, this stuff has been around. Yeah, this stuff is a really really potent. I mean, the most I mean, it's the most potent you know greenhouse gas there is that's known to man. And, here we are. Here we are putting in wind turbines, <laughs> which you know are one of the goals. One of the goals I thought was, you know, to reduce uh, global warming and reduce emissions and reduce um, some of those issues. So, um, and how all this fits together, technologically, pollution-wise, reliability, cost-wise, it's a difficult puzzle to put together. Jason, I mean, I've studied it for four or five years now. And, you know, and I'm not sure you know, there's a lot of answers. I don't I don't know. But I like you, I am concerned that shoving all of the renewables into the system as fast as we have using tax incentives when there's indications there are secondary effects like killing birds or vaporizing birds with the with the mirror systems or whatever. Um, um as well as just transmission lines, transmission losses, um, as well as, as you know, just the mining question. I mean, and the other thing is everybody, you know, when, when you go, you listen to the people, and I've been to a number of, the solar people have been, i got to admit, everybody's been great to me. I show up at a, a, and they'll tell me, you know, and answer honestly what they think. But one of the questions I have is, well, if I put a solar system on my house or I put it, you know, when I generate how long will that solar cell last? Oh, 25 years. Oh, and it's like, well, how do you know it's going to be 25 years? Because they haven't been around for 25 years. Well, it's, it's warranted for 25 years. It's like, well, that doesn't mean, I mean, they can replace it, you know, if, if, it, if it doesn't. But, but from a material and impact standpoint, you know, if they have to take my roof and replace it after 12 years and take that stuff to the dump, I don't know. I don't know what's in a solar cell, so I don't know if you can take it to the dump or whether that's actually hazardous material. That's hazardous. Um, is it okay? Yeah, there's. Yeah, I you mean, just can't. You just. You're not supposed to be just throwing it out. There's certain. Yeah, there's certain things that you need to be doing. There's silicon in there, and some some of them even has quartz coal. So I mean, okay. You know, there's. Yeah, there's there's some issues. Solar. I've. You know, I'm. I, I don't. To usually dog on solar as much um you know as a journalist because solar um is not as bad for the environment as wind wind is terrible for the environment wind is terrible for the economy um solar has not been as bad in fact like I, i've said for years you know solar uh they, they give us some some decent 
cell phone charging batteries. They, you know, for some people that want to live off the grid, it's a good way to supplement some, you know, something else with a wood burning stove or a natural gas or something along those lines. Solar's, you know, been around for a long time. Humans have figured out a way to do it uh, in a lot of different ways from cooking to heating and a number of different things. And we'll figure it out. We will figure it out. The farmers 150 years ago, 100 years ago, were more efficient with wind energy than we are today. We've gone the wrong direction. That's all. We, we're not figuring out wind. We're going the wrong direction with wind. Solar, I do believe we're going in the right direction. Solar, the problem with solar is it, it's, it's adherent to a battery. You have to have a battery. Otherwise, it's not, you can't use it at night. And th therein lies the problem with solar. And everybody's okay with that. Everybody's okay with that. Uh, there was rumor of a terawatt battery a few years ago, probably four or five years ago. I haven't heard anything from it since. So they, they didn't, they weren't kind of like Cummings a few, uh, I want to say five, six years ago, I talked to the VP of Cummings and they just could not get that, that engine over the Rocky Mountain efficiently enough. You know, they just could not for that, for liquid natural gas. They just couldn't do it. And so I haven't heard much, you know, in, in the way of uh, sweeping, uh, LNG, CNG trucks, you know, taking over Swift uh, and, um, you know, the, the, the trucking companies. So, I mean, they're slowly doing it. Don't get me wrong. They're, they're making decent enough strides, but it's not, I don't know. I, I look at solar and wind, 30, 40 years of subsidies, 20 years of having it ramped up. You've got the government forcing people to do things, and this is as far as you've gotten. I think it's time that we pull the reins back a little bit and have, have a little bit of assessment time. And just to do that, it seems like it's really difficult to get. I did want to, by the way, I did want to ask you, um, as we wrap up here, I'm taking a look at the clock, um, about remote drilling, artificial intelligence on the well. That's obviously another top five story of the year. Um, I do believe most people, if not all, Energy companies are going to have conversations or put it in their budget for next year. Remote drilling, I think we're to that point now to where, I, I think we're in the 90s now with cable television. I think we're over 80% now. You know what I mean? We're starting to get yeah. the, so just your thoughts on remote drilling, artificial intelligence on, on the well site, where that whole direction is going. I think we're over the 50 yard line though. Yeah, that's a good question. That's an area I really have not looked in very much. In two weeks, I'm going to go up um, I have looked into artificial intelligence with regard to uh, drone use and drone pipeline inspections. And I know, uh, actually, North Dakota is involved with this. A couple of your agencies are, as well as some industry folks, where if you take a drone or you take satellite imagery of, say, a pipeline and you run it daily, you know, versus you run the drone or you run the satellite image daily, you can use artificial intelligence to tell you gee, there's something that, and, and, you know, they can identify potentially a spill or some type of incident much quicker than, than you would, we would, you would know otherwise by alarm, especially if it's a smaller leak, because a smaller leak, you're not going to have any pressure differential. You're not going to lose that much liquid. And, but you can, you'll be able to see it or the artificial intelligence will be able to pick it up. And so I've, I'm familiar with, with, um, AI with drone use, and uh, but past the drilling aspects, I really haven't. Um, I really haven't drilling, Jason. Well, actually, it is interesting. Drilling evolves and, and is moving so quickly. 
actually was at a drill bit plant in August, and they were talking, well, a couple of points. They were talking how things were really slowing down, and they were very concerned, and they said, number one, so they said, we're not laying everybody off, but if the rig count continues to fall, you know, people are just aren't going to use that many bits that they used to, and we'll have to cut back, and so I think they're probably at that point now, um, number one. Number two, they said all these uh, drill bits are computer designed, and it depends on whether you're in the Bakken, whether you're in the Barnett, whether you're in the Permian, uh, what formation. Each operator will might have a preference as the, the design of his, their bit. It's sort of like having, you know, you put a, you buy a Corvette and you put a big fin on the back and I, you know, I put a big fin on the front and they both, you know, they both get where they want, where they want to go quickly, but um, you know, you, you customize your bid is what I'm trying to say. It's and absolutely incredible. Are, yeah, they're they're, they're and they have these little these, these little um, containers. They ship them in. They look like big, you know, bowling ball containers, except they're really heavier than heck. Uh, but they um, but so all the bits are generally specialized, and they said the company, you know, they'll look at the designs, and you'll you'll it's a custom. It's you know, it's like buying it's like building a custom car, and they said it. You know, it depends. You can increase the, the penetration rate i mean there's all sorts of different variables they look at that when they design this stuff so it's uh it's pretty cool and as, as i you know to talk to the engineer uh he was a big nebraska football fan too so i was giving him a hard time about you know what what this, this coming season is going to look like so I, I haven't even kept track of nebraska i'm not sure how well they're doing this year but uh in any event it was interesting hearing him talk about you know he's a mechanical engineer and he got in this business 30 years ago and everything used to be hand design and now it's all on you know cad cam or whatever they call it i it's not that's probably not even the latest software but it's all you know, he has the bit there he can rotate it they wouldn't let me take pictures they say put your camera away buddy because this is all confidential we don't want you know to see any of this stuff on linkedin when you're we're showing our, our competitors what we're doing so i thought that was sort of funny they were they were very nice about it but i and i totally understood i said hey you know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't let me take pictures either, bud. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the the, bi- the bigger thing is you're right. Where the artificial intelligence mostly is going to be ushered in through a security or a monitoring into the oil industry, and it's already started. But I think it's ramping up more and more. And then I do think the remote drilling though is um, catching on more and more from the people I've been talking to. To where um, those those are probably two of the bigger innovation leaps i think that you're going to see next year um as we have next year's conversation i think that'll be a bigger bigger story but i like your precision fabrication story there because that's that's true so many of these uh customizations or so many of these uh, companies are into customization to where you can almost do that shale play by shale play now because if you're going to order a hundred of those drill bits yeah you might as well get them customized Right, right. It's a, and it's pretty. It's it's a high tech deal, and it's all boy that machine shop. It's really uh, neat to see. I will have. I will tell you what the story of next year will be if you want to. If you want to end on that, you bet. We got about three minutes, so sounds good. All right. Well, the, the story of next with the rig count falling relentlessly for the entire year, we're down twenty three percent year over year. With the people are going to be shocked, Jason, at how little oil production gains there are from the United States, from the shale plays. You know, we are, we have increased our efficiencies very quickly, but, you know, with, you know, I, God, I can't even, 
Um, remember, essentially, they I think we're down. We have 822 rigs running now. We're down 245. We have 245 rigs that are missing. When the market figures out that we aren't going to be flooded with oil, prices are going to be much higher next year for oil, and it'll be supply and demand, <clears throat> assuming we don't have a major recession. And uh, just because we aren't going to have we aren't going to have the million or million and a half additional barrels from the United States, we'll be we'll be lucky to be even, in my opinion. Um, cause just because when you're down twenty three percent. I mean, 23% is a lot of rigs. It's a lot of people. And um, it's a lot of oil. And it's a lot of oil that's not going to get produced. And uh, and we'll, the, the street has not caught on to that. I agree. In fact, I was just telling someone the other day, um, they work in the heating and cooling and the boiler industries. Oh. And I said, you cannot have 20 to 25% of the only industry that created jobs over the last 10 years. Now, keep in mind, the only industry that created has a net gain of jobs is the mining industry. So if the only industry that is creating jobs is laying now percentage, say, well, I don't know, 10% of the industry has been laid off or whatever it has been, that is going to have a ripple into next year because when the rig counts are down, that means that less people are buying five Monster Energy drinks and three sandwiches every day at the gas station. Well, when and the oil changes are down and the haircuts are down, when that happens, people usually wait till after Christmas before they start laying off people. People that are not adherent to shareholders and, and they don't, you know what I mean? People who right. you know can, can still have a heart, you know, those type of right. people, they, they, right. they usually right. wait till after Christmas. And that's why I do think you're, you're not going to see a lot of this till next year because I'm already starting to hear. Let me tell you about a, a, a quick email as I wrap up here. Uh, I got this morning from a guy. Uh, he got a quote not even eight months ago for some shipping stuff that was going to happen in November. Well, he just got the new quote they sent him, and it was 300% higher than what the quote was. In, wow. In, right. In six to eight months, their business had changed that much, and they ha they've had that much changes, I guess, in, in whatever supply chain they got as a distribution company that they had to go back to them and say, it's going to now be 300% more than we quoted you, not even a year ago. That, yeah. That's incredible. That, that, that to me is a sign of the times and, and what's, been go what, what's going to go on next year is you're going to start to see that happen as well because, um, like you said, you can't, when rigs are down 23%, things are, you know, something's going to happen with that. That's just, that's just the way it goes. I mean, every time in the course of history, it's happened. And it usually takes a little bit of a ripple effect beyond that. So, all right, sir. Well, that's, that's um, some good stuff. We got rig counts, renewable energy. We got artificial intelligence, California's wildfire, coal power, natural gas, uh, all kinds of different things for story of the year. So um, we'll be talking soon. And uh, last word, any, any final thoughts as we wrap the year up? Yeah, Jason, uh, no final thoughts other than my SMU Mustang football team is doing really well this year. So hopefully they'll make it to a playoff game and maybe we'll see maybe we'll see a team from North Dakota up, you know, somewhere on in some playoff uh, game and some reasonable uh, reasonable abode where it's actually not snowing. <laughs> well, well I'm, I'm sure we'll be down in Frisco, Texas, like we have in the past seven years. We're go actually, North Dakota State's going for its seventh straight championship or seventh championship in eight years. Uh, yeah, but it's, awesome. 
it's Division Two, awesome. Division One, Double A, um, whatever it is, FCS. I call it Division Two still, which is showing you my age. But it's it's the, the one class below Alabama, but they still call it Division One. And so, right, right. yeah, we go to Frisco, Texas every year. I mean, it's it's. I mean, I, it's lock, stock, and barrel. Again, we're number one again this year, undefeated, still rolling through each person. And so, if we don't win this year, it'll be an upset. Uh, SMU, I saw you guys had a tough game the other day. Anyway, I better get going. I got another interview lined up. We can talk. Although now we're going to get into football, and we'll talk all. <laughs> uh, you know, I did a sports <laughs> talk show for twelve years, so I can talk sports all day long. Sports, sports, right. sports. So important, you got to say it three times. So all right, Jason, we'll talk again. Thanks uh, again.